Uh, so my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Access. Um, it's really great to see everyone here. Uh, before we get into the message, there is one uh, special announcement I want to make about an event that we're hosting uh, in March 27th to 28th, and that's an event called the Invitation to Racial Righteousness. Um, as many of y'all know, our church is in this um, kind of strategic vision to pursue the question of what it looks like for our church to be involved in conversations around multi-ethnicity, racial justice, and racial righteousness. And so we've been talking about this on Sundays. Uh, that's what we'll be talking about today as well. But um, we've really only begun to scratch the surface on this topic. And uh, we are looking at different ways to create spaces in which our people, our community, can really be formed in both our theological, biblical understanding as well as practically what it looks like for us as uh, ambassadors of the kingdom of God, right, as we were singing these worship songs, to be involved in the work of racial, racial righteousness, both personally and in our communities. And so this is uh, probably the big event that we are hosting, uh, at least in the first half of the year. And we really want to encourage everyone in our community to, to really make an effort to attend. Um, our speakers are Dominique Gilliard. He is the national director of the Evangelical Covenant Church's uh, kind of, he's the director of racial righteousness and justice and reconciliation in our whole movement. And so he travels the country training churches like ours around this important work. And so it's, we'll be flying him in from Chicago, uh, as well as his wife, Catherine Lamb, um, who's the regional administrator for uh, Young Life Ministries in uh, Chicago. And so uh, this weekend will be very interactive. It'll be a lot of sharing and conversations as well as being equipped in better understanding what this means for us as a church. So um, we're also really excited because we're going to be partnering with Life Path Church, which is another, another covenant church, as well as uh, Ecclesia Clear Lake um, with our good friend Kobe. Uh, he was our youth retreat speaker. And so, um, yeah, I, I really hope that you will make the effort to come. And, you know, I know it, it's, a, it's another event to add to your schedule. We're, we're all very busy. It means looking for childcare and all these things. But I really believe it'll be worth it. And so uh, if you can, um, block those dates off and plan on coming. That'll be Friday night to Saturday. You can register online. So um, yeah, let's, let's take a moment to pray. Pray for what God wants to say to us uh, today. Um, yeah, I mean, I follow the coronavirus thing like daily and it's, yeah, there's like, there's just so much stuff that feels burdensome, you know, in the news and just in our world. A lot of fears, a lot of worries. And I'm glad I'm very glad that we can gather here, right, to refocus our minds and our hearts on God and his kingdom. Man, what a great message um, that, we, that we were hearing in the worship. So let's, let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for this space to gather uh, as a people, as your people, as your beloved community. And we stand not in our own strength or power, but through the power of your son, Jesus, who is crucified and rose again, and who gave us the gift of the Spirit that we might consciously depend on the Spirit moment to moment every day. And so we pray that that same Spirit, which rose Christ from the dead, would be the same Spirit that speaks to us through your word, that we would be open to receive what you have to say to us about our lives and about the world that we live in. And we pray for our world. Uh, there is a lot of suffering, a lot of chaos happening. We pray, God, for your peace. We pray for your mercy. We pray that people would turn to you and submit their wills and their lives, their countries to you, God. 
And so, God, thank you that you're here with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in case you're just joining us, we have been in a series called A Church That Unites Diverse People. And in this series, we're studying the book of Acts and looking how the message of Jesus Christ spread, how it took root beginning in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and then spreading outward to the ends of the earth. And as this message of Jesus spread, this message that uh, Christ is Lord spread, uh, unlikely people joined this new community along the way. Uh, And we've been looking at how uh, this new community, this new humanity, which we now call the church, welcomed both Jew and non-Jew or Gentile, and how it welcomed both men and women alike. Because when you have faith in Jesus, something powerful happens. God says you become adopted into his, his very family. And so what God was forming through the book of Acts was this new family where Jew and Gentile belong, where unlikely people were welcomed into the family of faith. Uh, last Sunday, our friend Jovin spoke from uh, Acts chapter 16. And I listened to the message online because I wasn't here this past Sunday. And so I was very encouraged by her words. And we heard how Paul and Silas continued their missionary journey. And along the way, as they stopped in Philippi, they met a group of women. Uh, The uh, chief among uh, was a, a woman named Lydia. And how Lydia received this message with open arms and then welcomed the disciples into her home and hosted them. And I thought how appropriate that uh, Jovin came to speak about this message that uh, highlighted how women, which in that society were seen as lesser, how they were, they were welcomed in and how they belonged. And last Sunday was special because it was a service that was led by many of our gifted women in our community. Uh, and so we had uh, you know, Amy and Christine leading us in worship. Elaine was our worship coordinator. Uh, Jovin gave the message. Uh, Andrew, who is not a woman, gave the announcements. But, uh, uh, and it was, I was just so proud because I heard that the service was very just edifying, was, was a really awesome time. And I was, oh, Gloria, you read scriptures, right? And I just thought how awesome that our women could uh, use their gifts and offer them to our community because we are a church that believes that God has called and gifted both men and women to serve and lead in the church. So thank you, women, and thank you, Andrew. Um, So today, we are going to continue our journey through the book of Acts, looking at Acts chapter 17. And so keep in mind that at the end of Acts chapter 16, this narrative, what has happened is that uh, Paul and Silas have been accused of kind of creating an uproar in the city, of introducing these customs and laws that go contrary to society at the time. And so they're actually in jail, then they're released, but then the city officials say, hey, you guys need to go. You're not welcome here. And so Paul and Silas, they're forced to leave. And so then they decide to go to the next place, and they go to Thessalonica. So that's where we're going to pick up here. Um, I just want to say this. 
If you are following along, like in your quiet times or your devotions, reading along in the book of Acts, um, it's a really neat thing to then read the corresponding letter that Paul writes to the church that he visits. So in Acts chapter 17, he visits Thessalonica. Well, then read First and Second Thessalonians, which is the letter he writes to the church that he planted there. And it just adds like this whole new layer of depth and meaning to the scripture. So I encourage you to check that out. So let's read from verse 1. We're going to only read the, we're going to only uh, today look at the first kind of third of Acts chapter 17. So when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So it's interesting that at this point in Paul's ministry, he continues to look for synagogues to be the base of his operations. So, you know, last Sunday we heard that because he couldn't find a synagogue in Philippi, he went to the outside of the city, and that's where he met Lydia and the other woman. But typically, when he went from city to city, Paul would look for the synagogue. He would look for the gathering of Jewish people, and that's where he would start. And that's a little bit ironic because Paul would later say that he was the apostle to the Gentiles, non-Jewish people. So why would you go to a Jewish place to preach to non-Jewish people? Well, I think it highlights an important thing that we often forget, that you can only begin where you are. You can only start where you are. I think a lot of us forget this. I know I certainly do. Sometimes I have a vision of something I want to obtain or achieve, but then I look at my present reality and the gap is just too large that I don't know where to start. Like, I don't, I, I, I don't know where to begin. I see it, but I see where I am, and I'm just like, oh, I don't. How do I get from here to there? And so I end up being paralyzed. And so, for example, like, you know, if you're a person that wants to run a marathon, but you're like, you, you watch Netflix, then how do, you, how do you get from couch potato to running a marathon? And you can be very, like, it could feel like that's too great a chasm to cross. Well, for me, I was like, okay, if I want to run a half marathon, that's one of my goals uh, this year then maybe I could start by running a block, you know, like walking a block or running a block every day. I have to start small. If my goal is to read, and this isn't my goal, but if your goal is to read 100 books a year, that's, that's huge. Well, start by reading one page a day, right? Like that's, that's a manageable. You start where you are. Uh, and when I think about our church as a church that's seeking to become a church that unites diverse people, that vision can feel very daunting as well, can't it? And what can be tempting in that, with that vision is to, one, either feel paralyzed, like, how is that ever supposed to happen? Or two, is to think, okay, well, what does that church in Chicago do? We'll just replicate that. Or what does that church in L.A. do? We'll, we'll do that, because that worked for them. But that's not our story. That's not who we are. That's not our starting point. We can only begin where we are. And so the question that you and I have to wrestle with is what does it look like for a predominantly Asian American church that was planted out of West Houston Chinese Church 12, 13 years ago? What does it look like for us 
to pursue this vision that God has given. And our path, our trajectory will look different. So you start where you are. And this is exactly what Paul did, right? He was given a calling to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, but he began with what he knew, with the synagogues. And he preached to Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah. And sometimes there would be non-Jewish people there, and they would believe on that message, and then they would be included. And so people like Lydia and Timothy would join this movement, and it grew and grew and grew. So Paul is in Thessalonica, in the synagogues, proclaiming a message. And I want us to pay close attention to the content of his message, because uh, the content of his message kind of comes back up in the second paragraph of this chapter. So what we see um, in verse 3, right, he says, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. He was trying to explain and prove to them that Jesus was the Messiah that had to suffer and rise from the dead. Okay. Uh, so Paul was trying to show them from the Old Testament scriptures, because remember, that's all they had at the time, that Jesus Christ, the one who had been crucified and rose from the dead, was in fact the Messiah. Right? So that's kind of a theologically loaded term. But every Jew would have known what that meant. Because in the Old Testament, there was this promised figure. Uh, they, they thought of this figure as the anointed one. They called him the Messiah. And this Messiah would be God's deliverance to the Jewish people, or to the world even. And this Messiah would bring peace, would bring justice to the world. This Messiah would bring deliverance and freedom from captivity. This Messiah would be a savior and a Lord. And so throughout the Old Testament, there are what uh, theological, theolo theologians and biblical scholars would call messianic passages. Passages of the Old Testament that point to the coming and the promise of a Messiah. So one of the most famous of these passages is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 through 7. This is like a favorite at Christmas because it speaks to the coming of Jesus. Let's, let's look at this together. For to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So we read this passage with the benefit of hindsight, and we're like, well, of course this is about Jesus, right? Of course this is about Jesus. But Jesus did something during his earthly life that really threw people for a loop. What is it? Well, he got crucified. That's right, right? He got crucified. So up until that point, people were like, hmm, you know that Jesus of Nazareth guy? Like, check out his miracles. The way he teaches, it's so powerful. He has this authority. Who is he? I think he's the big M. Like, that's, that's got to be him. And then he was crucified. And then people are like, oh, whoa. Totally way off. Definitely got that one wrong. 
What people didn't know, though, is that when Christ died on the cross, that was all part of the plan. That was not a sign of weakness as they thought. It was actually a sign of his love because Christ was intending to overcome sin and death from the inside out. This is what we preach at Christmas and Easter, and it is the message of the Christian faith. This is what the gospel is all about. And it might seem so obvious to us today, but it wasn't at all obvious to them back then. So Paul is seeking to explain to them, hey, this was part of the plan. He's trying to persuade them. So some people received the message and others not so much. Reading from verse 5, but other Jews were jealous So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. And so as Paul and Silas are doing this good work, and as they're telling people, like, hey, God loves the world. He has sent Jesus as the Messiah. What happens? What happens? inevitably happens almost in every single chapter. They face resistance. They face people who want to stand up against what they are trying to do, get in the way, and make it really difficult. And I think that's really worth pointing out. Because sometimes you and I think that when we're being faithful to God, when we're doing good things in his name or for him, when we're trying to walk the walk, that somehow, maybe we don't quite say it, but we think it, that sort of God owes it to us to kind of at least make the path a little bit smooth, you know, or smoother rather than rougher. And what I find in Acts is that it's actually not the case at all. Not that God sends the mob to stand in their way, but that it happens over and over again to people, godly people who are being faithful, who have God's stamp of approval upon them. Would anyone argue that God is not with Paul and Silas? Clearly God was. And yet these things continued to happen. They faced roadblock after roadblock. And at some point you have to, you have, you, we might wonder, like, oh God, why is this happening? And yet they realize that even with these roadblocks, God is still with them. He is still with them. And I think that's just worth pointing out because in our pursuit of what is good, what we believe is right, in our pursuit of being faithful to God, there will be obstacles. There will be resistance. And that doesn't mean that God is somehow displeased or has abandoned us, right? Quite quite the opposite as this narrative reveals to us. But I do want us to consider this event a little bit more closely. Um, So Paul has gone to the synagogue, a place of worship, to teach about Jesus, and then a riot ensues. So I was thinking, like, that would kind of be like uh, if after one of our sermons here at Access, you know, uh, like what I say is so incendiary and controversial that the residents and you become so, like, upset and furious. Residents of Spring Branch called the cops and then, like, in the parking lot on Stebbins, we have, like, a, a mob forming and saying, get that guy out of here, right? Get, get out of our town. Leave Houston. You know, go to Dallas or something. And they're, like, just mad or something. That, that would, like, never 
happen, right? That would just be so out of the question. So what could Paul possibly be saying that would cause this sort of extreme reaction? So let's look at what they say. So when they, they went to look for them, when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, hey, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They, so here's the accusation, they are all defying Caesar's creeds, right? So Caesar is the, 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 the man in charge of the Roman Empire, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. So two accusations, they're defying Caesar's creeds, uh, and they are claiming that there's another king. So when, the, when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials, you know, were thrown into a, a uh, turmoil, then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. So, were the accusations that they levy against Paul and Silas true? Were they defying Caesar's decrees and were they saying that there is another king? The answer is what? Yes, yes, they were, right? It was against the decree of the land to claim that there was another king higher than Caesar. That was against the law, and it was considered treason, okay? Secondly, were they claiming that there was another king? Yes, because when they were saying that Christ or Jesus is the Messiah, they were, in fact, making the assertion that Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. And so in the Old Testament, the idea of a Messiah has a lot of connected ideas, So to be Messiah is to be Lord. It is to be king. It is to be savior. It is to be the anointed one who would deliver humankind from its bondage. And so that is why in the New Testament, we often see this title, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you ask a little kid, hey, what's Jesus' last name? They might say Christ. You and I know better, right? Christ means Messiah. It means anointed one, right? So it's Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. And we append to the front of that title, the Lord, right? Jesus is the Lord. He is the Lord, Jesus Christ, right? So Jesus is just a common Jewish name, right? a Hebrew name, right? Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, and Lord. And so we see in this title, they all get kind of wrapped together. You can't really separate them from the identity of Jesus. And so to call Jesus Messiah was to say, yeah, this one is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And that was to go against the decree of Caesar. But there is some untruth to what they are saying as well. Because from what you read, it sounds like Paul and Silas are like trying to sow seeds of social discord, doesn't it? It sounds like they're accusing them of being these fomenters of like a a coup or something like that. And that couldn't be further from the truth. That is just patently false. Because while they would say that Christ, Jesus, is the Messiah, Jesus is king, Paul would be extremely clear uh, that he wanted all followers of Jesus to lead a quiet and humble life, to be good citizens, not to bring disrepute to the name of Jesus. And so he would tell them, if you, know, you want to follow this king, right, the king of kings, 
that means being subject to the earthly rulers. Following the way of Jesus means, yeah, you're going to contribute to society in a way that actually uh, seeks the welfare of all. That was something that Paul made very clear to those who believe in the message of Jesus. And so what was the big deal? What was the big deal of making this claim that Jesus is Messiah? Maybe there was some fear and jealousy involved and they were just looking for different excuses, but I also think that when we make the claim that Jesus is Messiah, we are inviting people to follow him. We are inviting people to place their trust in him. We are inviting people to give their life to him. This is no less than an invitation and a challenge to change allegiance. And when you mess with people's allegiances, when you mess with people's loyalties, you're opening a can of worms, aren't you? Because these are the things that we hold close to the chest and to the heart. These are the things that define us and matter to us. They are the things we build our lives upon. Christians, we Christians, are really great at throwing around different phrases like praise the Lord, God is good all the time, all the time God is good, right? He has a plan for your life, God's in control, don't feel bad if you say these things. These are true things, right? We like to say Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and uh, you know, these are true phrases, but because of their overusage sometimes, we lose uh, touch with the gravity of what they mean. They become cliche, they become empty words for us. Uh, And this phrase, Jesus is Lord, is not a cliche. It is not something to be trifled with, right? We have to keep in mind that there are some parts of the world that if you are to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. It could literally cost you your life. And so when we say Jesus is Lord, we are making a big claim. We are making a weighty claim. Jesus is Lord is a claim about true power. That no weapon on earth No power of evil below can overcome the power of Christ. His love, his death, and his resurrection. To say Jesus is Lord is a claim about who occupies the highest office. There is no president, there is no prime minister, there is no despot or dictator or ruler or politician that holds higher office office than the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who is seated at the right hand of God Almighty. To say Jesus is Lord is a claim about what holds supreme value. That neither gold, nor wealth, nor stocks, nor money, nor houses, nor cars, nor boats, or whatever private jets have more value than the precious pearl, right? Than he, the eternal weight of glory of Christ the King. 
To say Jesus is Lord is a claim of permanence. That ultimately there is one day when time and space will get swallowed up by the eternal being of God. Christ is Alpha and Omega, first and last. To say Jesus Lord is nothing short of a claim on our allegiance, that all other allegiances must be reordered according to our first allegiance to Jesus. Now, um, every Tuesday night, um, uh, my oldest son and I, we gather for a scouting meeting. And at the start of every scouting meeting, we say the Pledge of Allegiance. That is part of uh, our tradition and our ritual. And um, I think this is the case, right? If you're in a Texas elementary school, do we, we pledge to the Texas flag, right? Uh, being from Ohio, I found that very fascinating, right? <laughs> wow, Texans really love their Texas, right? So it's right up there with you know, the Pledge of Allegiance, right? So... Um, there are those kind of overt ways we pledge, we convey our allegiances. Uh, if you're an Aggie, you know, how many Aggies are wearing your rings today, right? That's kind of a unique thing too, right? That's, that's a way of showing pride and allegiance to your alma mater, right? Rice, we had, we had a ring, but uh, I didn't buy it. It's much smaller than the Aggie one, right? The Aggie one has a much more bling to it, right? So it's very obvious, like, yeah, I'm an, I'm an Aggie, man. Um, or like we, we show our allegiance to our sports teams through our, like our hats and our, our clothes and stuff like that. So those are kind of the public allegiances that we have. But there are many allegiances that are not so obvious, but they run a lot more deeply, don't they? Right? They are hidden. They are the treasures of our hearts. That's what Jesus says. They are the flags and the monuments that are erected in the secret places of our, of our thought life and of our souls and in our hearts. And it's these things that Christ as Messiah calls and confronts. There is a song uh, by Derek Webb that I think articulates this reality very, very clearly. Uh, in the chorus of the song, A King in a Kingdom, he writes, my first allegiance is not to a flag, not to a country or a man. My first allegiance is not to democracy or blood. It's to a king and a kingdom. What else might we add to this list? Maybe capitalism, right? Free market economies. Maybe our freedom. Maybe our pursuit, our right to pursue our happiness. Maybe our family, our kin. Uh, it could be our culture, our race, our ethnicity. And so when we say, when we confess that Christ is Lord, we are not saying that we erase and we have no other allegiances. No, what we are saying is who or what gets to be first? Who or what gets to be primary? Because when we give our allegiance to Christ the King, it supersedes and it reorders all other allegiances. And when we get our first allegiance right, right 
then we can get the others. They get, they get placed in their proper order. Some allegiances we will need to get rid of. They will need to be repented of. Others will need to be sifted and purified, right? They will need to be healed and mended. And others are good, right? Loyalty to your family, that's a good thing. But it can't be first, right? Loyalty to your spouse, that's a good thing, but that can't be first. They need to be reordered. And as long as Christ is first, then that helps to reorder all the other ones. For us as a church, as we think about becoming a church that unites diverse people, so long as our allegiances are disordered, we will have no chance of living out this vision. Because inevitably what will happen is our allegiances, our other loyalties to different things, whether it's politics, different viewpoints, different opinions, those things will stand in the way of our unity in Christ. They will. They just just always will. And so we, as a people, must be super clear on who our first allegiance is to. It is to Christ. That is the binding and common factor that gives us the ability and the power to become a church that truly unites diverse people. And so as we do this, I submit my ethnicity to Jesus. It is not that I forget it, or erase it, or pretend it's not there. No, I submit it to Jesus. And so to claim and to believe in Jesus, this message confronts us with the question, who or what lays claim to our allegiance? Who or what lays hold to the things we most value and prize? And a second question is this, how does our belief in Jesus as Messiah need to reorder our allegiances? How does our belief in Jesus as Messiah need to reorder our allegiances? Uh, If you call yourself a Christian today, this, this absolutely applies to us. We are constantly, constantly struggling with keeping Christ as first allegiance, right? We constantly struggle. I struggle with that every day. And so uh, every morning, you know, it was um, over 20 years ago for the very, like, I consciously, uh, I was a 10th, uh, I was 10th grade. I can't even do the math. But anyways, I was 10th grade. I had already heard of Jesus. I had accepted Jesus as my Savior. But I, I very clearly was like, I am not ready to follow you as Lord. Like, I want you to save me. If I die, I want to go to heaven, but I am not ready to submit my social life, dating, friends, my values to you as Lord. I don't want you to have that. And through a various series of conversations, soul searching, kind of just really wondering what is this life about, I came to the conclusion that, yeah, if Christ loved me enough to give his very life for me and he rose again, then who else could I trust my life to? Certainly, I had seen that. I I was not capable of being in charge of my life. And so very distinctly, on one day in my room, just by myself, on my bed, I was like, Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. I I will follow you as Lord. And that, that, that changed everything in my life, right? Now, fast forward all those years. 
Every day I realize if I don't start the day with a conscious decision to reorient my priorities, to make Christ my number one, then I fall into old patterns. John likes to be number one. And so every day, one of the things I pray is this. This is verbatim what I pray. By your spirit, please guide me and lead me. Right? For you are the Christ, the risen Lord, and I gladly submit myself to you in everything that I do today. That's what I pray every day. You are the Christ, the risen Lord, and I gladly and I have to say that, you know, like after my, because sometimes I don't gladly submit to Jesus as my Lord, right? I'm like, I don't want to do that, right? I don't want to forgive this person. I don't want to be kind. I don't want to be patient. I don't, whatever. I, I gladly submit to you in everything that I do today. And so that's one way I am able to reorient, reorder my allegiances. How about you? What does that look like for you? What does it look like for you if you claim Christ as Messiah, Christ as Lord, to reorder your allegiances? Now, I also want to address, this story also invites a response to those of us who may be like me when I was younger or before, you know, before I made that decision. You have never yet, with your mouth and with your will, confessed Christ as Lord, right? You've kind of been maybe, you know, flirting with this faith thing, interested, dabbling your feet and hands in it that you have yet to, to kind of really decide, Jesus, I will follow you. Not perfectly. I'll, actually, I'm guaranteed, to, I'm guaranteed to fail at it. But to the best of my ability, by the grace you provide, I will follow you. I will confess you as Lord. And this is what Romans 10, Paul also wrote this. He said this, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, right? Let's sit with what that means. Lord, Lord of the whole cosmos, the most powerful, the most permanent, the most enduring one. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the promise. And so if you have never confessed with your mouth, Christ is Lord, I want to invite you to do that this morning. You don't need any special words. You just say, you know, Jesus, I want to believe in you. I confess that you are Lord, and I want to follow you. I mean, it could be as simple as that. So church, as we seek to be a church that unites diverse people, let us begin where we are. Let's begin right where we are. And what is the Spirit saying to you this morning about your allegiances? about who or what occupies primary place. And if that is not Christ, that's okay. Acknowledge that, admit that, confess that to God, and turn to him. He always waits, waits for us with arms wide open. So let's pray together. Spirit, we invite you to just move, to speak to us. If there are any in our midst today that um, feel that kind of nudging to say yes to you as Lord, I pray that you would give them the courage 
to utter those words to you, even right now. Thank you, God, that you are a God of love and welcome, and you are calling all of us to believe on you. And for those of us who know this, we know it, we've said it, but maybe in our hearts, Lord, those things which should be second or third or fourth or fifth priority have become number one. And we need to admit that to you. And we call upon your mercy and your grace and your spirit to reorder our priorities, to reorder our allegiances, God. Thank you, God, for who you are. In your name we pray, amen. As we continue to pray, I'd like to invite the worship team to lead us just in a song of response. And so feel free to, uh, you know, sing the song if the words express your desires. Feel free to just sit quietly and continue to wrestle with where you are at uh, with God these days, knowing that God is gracious. There is no accusation or condemnation. There's the invitation to respond to him, okay? So... Uh, let's continue to honor this moment um, and listen to the Spirit of God. Let the King of my heart be the mountain where I run, the fountain I drink from. Let the king of my heart be the shadow where I hide, the ransom for my life, oh, he is my song. You are good, good, oh, you are good, good, oh. Be the fire inside my 
I want to end uh, reading Paul's doxology from 1 Timothy, chapter 1, 17. Um, and it says this, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the one true God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen? Let's rise, let's say our sending prayer together as we dismiss from here. Loving God, through all our years, let the church be a community where we learn about love and practice it, where we envision peace and work to build it, where we meet partners in faith who wish to abandon everything that cheapens our discipleship, where we discover gifts and offer them. May your spirit guide us towards joy and generosity in Jesus' name, in the way of Jesus, amen. Church, let's... um, Let's dismiss quietly um, so that we can continue to wrestle with what God might be saying to us. We will be starting our mission partner gathering at 1145. And again, all are welcome, uh, but we highly encourage our mission partners to attend. Otherwise, we hope to talk to you at the meet and greet. Uh, Have a blessed Sunday. Thanks for being here today.